and still in that which is pure after ye see yourselves and then mercy comes in after thou seest thy thoughts and temptations do not think but submit and then power comes in this is our fourth session on reading and discussing the gospel according to mark we left off in the second chapter of mark at verse 17. Um, i know i was going to I, I think i'll do this anyway there was a question that um, pat dolman had asked and she's not here tonight because she's not feeling well about um what i had said about chapter 1 verse 41 where we have two different uh, readings and different uh, manuscripts where one says Jesus being angry and another says Jesus being filled with compassion. And uh, I did find, I had mentioned at that time that there were two Aramaic words that mean that and they're very similar. So uh, what I will do is just show that first before we go on. Two Aramaic words that mean what? One means being angry, the other um, being filled with compassion. And they're very similar sounding. These are in Syriac, sort of a system, one of the dialects of uh, Aramaic, which was the language, the common language of the people in Palestine at that time, of Jews and others. Ethra, um, there's a dot under the second H, and Ethra, M. You can see how similar they are in pronunciation there. It's not clear what happened, but obviously here in the Greek, we have, he, you know, he had compassion and he was angry. Uh, and these two words are very similar in um, Syriac. Any, any questions on that or anything we did last time? Does anyone seriously think that he was enraged? Well, it may refer to that he was enraged at just the fact that someone could be sick, could get, you know, oh, you know, have any kind of disease or paralysis or anything like that. So either one would make sense, but in a, in a different way, having pity, having compassion, or being angry, being enraged at the uh, paralysis. So it sounds plausible. Okay, he was angry at the fig tree after all. Uh, which, which of those two does he lean towards Henry? Oh, that's a good question. Let me think now. I don't know, Jack. I mean, I think if they asked me tomorrow, I might have a different opinion than what I have now. They right. both make well, sense in different ways. Well, you have to look at the context, too. Yeah, I mean, leprosy, you know, was a horrible disease. Although I should say something about lepers at that time. Leprosy, the word for leprosy in Greek did not just cover the disease leprosy. It covered any, any, a number of skin diseases. So this man may have had leprosy or he may have had some other skin disease. But anyway, he got cured of it. 
of course, being designated as a leper meant whether, regardless of what type of disease it was, you were just totally shunned from the rest of society. You couldn't uh, participate with others in any activity. I mean, my, my impression would be moved with compassion, you know, would be my first choice. I could see Jesus being feeling upset regarding the poor man with the, le with the leprosy and being angry at the disease. Shall we continue? <clears throat> we are on chapter 2, verse 18. And this has to do with fasting. Now John, that's John the Baptist. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. Jesus said to them, The wedding guests cannot fast while the bridegroom is with them. Can they? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. Jesus is speaking about himself here. Of course, good Jews would be fasting twice a week. I, it reminds me of something very interesting. Quakers traditionally have not fasted. And I do remember reading in some early friend saying, the only fast that we are required to do is to fast from sinning. In England at that time, there would be various public fasts that were declared by the Anglican Church for this or that reason. We have the bridegroom with us, right? So, Right, Christ Jesus. Of course, after his death and resurrection, it may be a reason to fast after that. But uh, with us always... I, I'm not clear. Maybe Jack knows. Uh, how how popular is fasting among various churches today? Among the plain Anabaptists, uh, it is not common. I think Orthodox and um, Eastern Orthodox and Catholics fast, and I, I'm just not familiar with what Anglicans do, Episcopalians and other Protestant denominations. Right. Well, like I said, among the Anabaptists, the plain groups, uh, fasting is not common anymore. So, I'm not aware that Quakers ever were big on fasting either. I don't even, think so. Even in the first generation, it would have, been, have. would have been seen as uh, Catholic. Ah, yeah, it's possible. But again, I, I don't recall who wrote that uh, the only fast is to fast from sin, fast from sinning. Uh, and that was something a, a Quaker mentioned somewhere, an early friend. Okay, let's continue. <clears throat> no one shows, no, I'm sorry, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old cloak. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost. So are the skins. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. Anyone have thoughts on that? Yes. Partly, Jesus was anticipating a new covenant that was coming. And, and more of faith that manifests itself inwardly rather than in outward rituals like the Jews had gotten heavily into a lot of outward show and such. 
Yes, and it seems that in the history of Christianity, as Christianity uh, proceeded over the centuries, returned to many types of rites and rituals that you had in the Old Testament. I mean, newly developed, but again, the same kind of mental framework. Yes. Feeling the need to have all these outward signs of sacraments, the outward rituals, the outward prayers, rather than this whole new way of focusing on the internal, the interior, the spiritual. Okay, let's go I, on. I, I suppose go it, would be, it would be too early to think of this as being the uh, um, thought that the Gentiles would be welcomed. It is a new new people, but maybe that's too early. I, I, I don't feel this that that's what's being addressed here. Okay, let's go on. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need of food? He entered the house of God, where Abiathar was high priest, when Abiathar was high priest, and ate the bread of the presence which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. And he gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for humankind, and not humankind for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Uh, I think we need a little explanation here that the uh, disciples were not stealing grain here as they were going through. This was okay. The issue here was doing anything that resembled what was considered work on the Sabbath. And that's the issue that's being addressed here. There were so many restrictions on the Sabbath as to what a good Jew could do that it could be very burdensome. As quite frequently happened, Jesus was healing on the Sabbath, and that was considered to be something that you couldn't do, according to so many of these Pharisees. And you have to remember, at this time, the Pharisees were considered the good guys. They were really for reforming Judaism in terms of keeping to all the laws and regulations that had become somewhat uh, lax among so many people. But Jesus is saying we need to go even beyond that and look at the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Any thoughts? Okay, let's go on to chapter 3. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there who had a withered hand. They watched him to see whether he would cure him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, Come forward. Then he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. He looked around at them with anger. He was grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately conspired with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Who were the Herodians? I don't recall at the moment. I'm assuming they were the party under King Herod, followers of King Herod, who had been assigned his position, of course, by Caesar as being a king of some Jews, some of the Jews. Would, would the Herodians have been a, a 
a segment of the Pharisees is what I was wondering. Oh, no, no. Uh, they would have been different. I mean, the Pharisees were more a more of a religious party than the Herodians were, in my understanding. You know, just like the Sadducees were also a religious party, the party of, oh, mostly the priests in the temple and that sort of thing. Of course, they were in the Sanhedrin. Uh, again, the Pharisees, too. I, I, I can't say much about the Herodians. I don't know. Okay, let's continue with verse 7. Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, hearing all that he was doing. They came to him in great numbers from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, in the region around Tyre and Sidon. He told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, so that they would not crush him. For he had cured many, so that all who had diseases pressed upon him to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and shouted, You are the Son of God. But he sternly ordered them not to make him known. I think what that's referring to is when a person was cured, it was clear that because of the cure, Jesus was the Son of God. And again, as I had mentioned in a previous session, Son is at a much higher rank than calling someone a prophet who is a spokesperson, a spokesman for God. A Son is even greater than that uh, in terms of one's, uh, in terms of his relationship to God the Father. So that there was something clearly seen in these miracles that uh, Jesus wasn't just like other prophets. He was a prophet, a spokesperson for God, but, but much more than that. Verse 13, he went up the mountain and called to him those whom he wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, to be with him and to be sent out to proclaim the message and to have authority to cast out demons. So he appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Among all these 12 <clears throat> disciples, there's something interesting about the name Philip. I wonder if anyone is aware of that. This name Philip, that's the Greek. Of all these 12 disciples, this is the only name that is actually a Greek name. All the rest are originally Aramaic or Hebrew. And the word is actually two, has two roots here. Hippos means horse and phil, as in Philadelphia, means love. This is a horse lover. But it's very interesting that uh, his is a Hebrew name. I mean, sorry, a Greek name rather than a, a native name in Aramaic or Greek. There is a passage in the um, uh, in one of the other Gospels where it mentions that two Greeks came up to Philip wanting to speak to Jesus. 
And I sometimes think, oh, they may have come to him because he may have been able to speak Greek. It's not clear whether Jesus knew Greek or not. Some scholars think he did, some think he didn't, some thought he might know some. I, I felt that passage is kind of interesting that it would be to the, to the one person who had a Greek name that those two Greeks come up to because they wanted to be introduced to Jesus. Any that other? is interesting, Henry. Yeah. I've never heard that before. I'm blanking out at the moment uh, where that occurs. It's in one of the other Gospels. Uh, that that has always been my assumption also, Henry, that oh. Philip must have spoken Greek, and that's why they came to him. And, and he's the only one that has this Greek name. Uh, Peter, that is, his name was Simon, was given the name Peter. The name in Greek, Petros, comes from the Greek word... Petra, which means a rock or a stone or a cliff, you know, like rock in the sense of a real rock, a big rock or whatever, like uh, the rock of ages, the uh, rock of Gibraltar. And so Peter was given this nickname, Rocky, or, or the rock. In, in, in the Hebrew, it's, it's Kepha, which gives us Cephas in English. What, what's the name Zebedee? Does that refer to anything? I don't know what the original... Hebrew or Aramaic names are here. I'm just seeing if I know any of the others. Or uh, the significance of Zebedee. So just that's the father's name, the kind of a what's called a patronymic. In Russian, in modern Russian, they a person everyone has three names. His 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 uh, what we call his first name, like John, and then you have a patronymic, which is son of or daughter of. And uh, then finally, your family name or surname. In Russian, I'm just mentioning this because this is still, this is somewhat similar to what was going on here. You would address someone like, I'll just give an example here. <clears throat> Ivan Ivanich Ivanov. That's uh, John, son of John Johnson, or last name, family name. So these first two names would be John, son of John. And that's what you often find here in the uh, New Testament, the given name plus the patronymic or the father's name. If this were a woman, it'd be uh, Olga Ivanovna Ivanov. And Ivanovna would mean that her father's name was Ivan. So but that's very similar to what you have here in the uh, Hebrew and uh, of that time in the Aramaic. Oh, one other thing, if they didn't have a name, a patronymic, they'd say so-and-so of a town or a city, so that Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus son of Joseph, you could go either way, and this is fairly frequent. You can see this with a number of other names in the New Testament. All right, okay, we ended at verse 19. Then he went home, and again, home for Jesus at this time was in Capernaum town on the Sea of Galilee. I mean, it, we call it a sea, but of course it's a lake. I think the Greek word thalassa meant both a sea, an actual sea, as well as a lake, a, a body of water. Then he went home, and the crowd came together again, so that they could not even eat. When his family heard it, they went out to restrain him, for people were saying, he has gone out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebul, and by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. And he called them to him 
and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But his end has come. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then indeed the house can be plundered. I think I probably mentioned here, it says in verse 23, he called them to him and he spoke to them in parables. This word parable comes from a Greek word, parabole, which is the Greek word for comparison. And Jesus spoke to them in comparisons, especially comparing the kingdom of God in some way. And in some languages, I know as in Greek, I'm sorry, in Chinese, they translate that directly as comparison rather than just transliterating the word parabole into parable. Someone who speaks Chinese perhaps gets a, a better feel or a different feel for what the word means. I think that's pretty straightforward, that passage. Any thoughts anyone else have on that passage? Oh, actually, I, I could, didn't understand it at all. I thought that was one of the more difficult oh. to understand. <laughs> what, what, is, what does he mean by asking whether he's saying that he's not Satan because he's casting out Satan? That's his... Well, I mean, the scribes, are, the scribes are saying he's got a demon in him, Beelzebul, and he's casting, casting out demons out of these poor folks. But Jesus is saying that makes no sense. I mean, why would a demon cast out a demon? The part about the strong man needing to be tied up, I don't get that. What's that about? I'm, I'm trying to remember. I, I think I read something about this once, but it, it's not coming to me at the moment. It seems kind of straightforward to me that... Yeah, it is straightforward. That, that is like, just what is... I mean, to me, it isn't even a comparison. It's just if some, if some strong man, if you try to break into his house and rob him, you got to tie him up first. So the same way, if he's if he's he can't cast out a devil and let a, a demon unless the one who gives power to those demons has been restrained in some way. Oh, so the strong man is Satan. Yes. Okay. Okay. Next couple of verses. <clears throat> Truly, I tell you, people will be forgiven for their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said, he has an unclean spirit. Saying that the Holy Spirit is an unclean spirit is, is totally destroying what the Holy Spirit is. Saying that it's something it isn't, that it's just the opposite of what it is. Again, the word spirit in Greek is... Pneuma, pneuma, and it refers to any, uh, it can be translated either as breath or as wind, depending on context, and as spirit. They're all, they all have movement in them, this invisible movement of air in breathing or in the wind or the invisibility of the, the spirit, the, the Holy Spirit. And there's sort of like this invisible current. So saying that the spirit itself is corrupt is just something that 
you know, there's no hope if that's how you understand it. So, uh, for they had said, he has an unclean spirit. Now, an unclean spirit is a spirit that wants to destroy, is up to destroy the, the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. Not only, just Satan is always working against God in, in all his, everything he does. Yes. Next is a passage I like, starting with verse 31 to the end of the chapter. Then his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside, asking for you. And he replied, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. I find this to be a very important thought that it's not what you call something as mother, brother, sister. It's actually how they relate to God. What are they doing? Are they doing God's will? That's much more important than saying they are a Christian or saying they're this or that. What really matters are their actions and their thoughts, not what they call themselves. If you recall in Matthew chapter 7 in verse 21, which has a very similar thought, it says here, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many deeds of power in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you evildoers. So it's not what something, how something is named, what we call it that matters or what they call themselves. But it's actually where their heart is. What, how are they acting, thinking, perceiving, doing that really matters, not what they call themselves. Another passage that we can refer to is in the book of Acts chapter 10, verse 34. This was after Peter went into the house of the pagan Cornelius and converted them. It says here, then Peter began to speak to them. I truly understand that God shows no partiality that is partial to the Jews, but in every nation, anyone who fears him, who holds him in awesome reverence and obedience and does what is right is acceptable to him. Again, that's a very similar thing, doing the will of God. It's not so much what we call ourselves as to how we are thinking and acting and doing. I, I don't understand what the people in the first instance were doing wrong, though. If they were prophesizing in Christ's name and casting out demons in Christ's name, what were they doing wrong? It might all just be outward show, say even rites and rituals. Another passage you could refer to is from the Old Testament. Um, you know, they're worshiping God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. It's an external thing that they're showing, but in actuality, where their heart is, where their, the deepest part of them is, is somewhere else. So what matters is 
not what one calls oneself or says one is doing, but what is actually there in, inwardly. Again, this, this is, again, something that is very Quaker, paying attention much more to the inward spiritual realities rather than the external outward uh, labeling and names people call themselves Christian or whatever they might say, but they may be warmongers and still call themselves Christians. It, it's, it's an important distinction that's been traditionally there from, from the very beginnings of Quakerism. It, it almost sounds as if even if you weren't a warmonger, that wouldn't be enough. You would have to be not a warmonger in the right way. Because they were prophesizing and casting out demons. Um, yeah, I mean, you wouldn't be a warmonger. I mean, probably wasn't a good choice of uh, an example. I remember, I just remember, uh, uh, for whatever reason, I uh, when I was in San Jose, California, where I used to work some 15, 20 years ago, and this was with the invasion of Iraq by American troops, there was just a, the sign on the side of a church that said, we support our troops. You know, I can say I support our American troops, but I would like to take them, bring them home. <laughs> and yet this church just had a very different understanding of that with this huge sign on the side of their outside wall. I'm just wondering, though, because I keep going back to this one passage because it seems like it's even a step further. It seems like you can be against war, like you're prophesizing and casting out demons and against war. But if it's not coming from the right place, then that's not enough. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I would agree with that. You know, again, I think as one becomes more and more Christ-like, one's whole conscience and, and awareness changes. It becomes, we hopefully are becoming more and more Christ-like in our thoughts. I, I often refer to Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. I can just refer to that again. Well, this translation I have here is not as good as what the Greek says. The Greek has an imperative there, a verb in the imperative, saying, think like, think the thoughts that Jesus thought. My translation here says, let the same mind be in you. Yes, that's true, but it's a little, not as strong. But this is actually a, a command to think like Jesus thought. Also, I'm thinking that it's, I think there's a misunderstanding that, that friends are opposed to war in the sense of trying to stop other people from shooting and so on. It, our opposition or, or our, our point of view is that war comes from the evil inside people and that we work to live in, in that life and power so those evil things, hatred and jealousy and all those things are not within us and to try to turn other people to feeling and thinking that way also, so that then the causes of war are removed. We, we talk about removing the causes of war, not stopping war itself. And I think that might be the difference. Yeah, I, if you go to uh, Epistle of James, it's chapter 4. Yes, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? It's those extreme desires for, for something or other. It goes on here. You want something and do not have it, so you commit murder. And you covet something and cannot obtain it, so you engage in disputes and conflicts. 
you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend what you get on your pleasures. Those impulses, those negative, evil impulses come from within. And they are the ones that need to be crucified on the cross of Christ. I mean, that is what we're talking about when we talk about being baptized in the death and resurrection of Jesus, being baptized in that cross, immersed in that cross. We really have to work on eliminating, subjecting, subduing all those negative impulses, tendencies, inclinations that are not from God. I just wanted to say that um, the one challenge there is that without coming to know Jesus, it's hard to know how to pattern ourselves. Um, so, you know, sometimes I have um, maybe speaking with someone who um, is atheist or um, at least agnostic and you know, maybe ha doesn't understand some of where I might think about those same issues when they're thinking in terms of, you know, being a good person, which is important, but without Jesus to understand how to pattern ourselves, that can be a, a difficult journey. Yeah, I mean, we are very fortunate to be born at this time after the death and resurrection of Jesus and to know of his life and death and resurrection. That is the exemplar we have, that we are to imitate how he thought. Recall what I'm saying that in Philippians it says, think the, same, think the thoughts that the same way that Jesus thought. That's a, can be a very, it's a very clear command, what we know and have learned of Jesus from the Gospels, from the New Testament. But that's that son of God, that seed. And I think next time we'll be starting chapter four with the very important, the parable of the sower of the seed. That seed is planted in everyone, even whoever they are, wherever they are. It may never get beyond being a seed. But if our ways, are, our, our way of thinking is correct, even if we never heard of Jesus, we may then follow that son of God in us that we don't know how to name it, but it is the same Son of God, the Spirit of Christ within us, the Word of God, that is the utterance of God within us, within everyone. Our early friends like to talk about this seed. Yes. The seed within. Very important phrase for them. Yes. Oh, yeah, very much so. And I mean, and we will be talking about that next week, it's especially with this parable of the sower which is, I, I find, one of the most powerful parables. And once it's understood clearly, I think it really says something about how we should act, that we need to make sure we, we become the right kind of ground for that seed to grow in. Now, of course, there are other passages, other comparisons Jesus makes with seeds, the mustard seed and, and others. You know, In um, the Epistle of James, the, it talks about the implanted word of God within us. I think something similar is said uh, in, I believe it's First Peter. And, and friends, early friends, traditional friends have, have really focused on that. We, you know, we need to, to water it, 
to put manure around it, to, to make it grow. Jesus talked about that too, that, that word of God within us. Okay, uh, I think we'll stop with that passage today. Just wondering, any other thoughts here? Just that what Heather said um, is so true, that when you, you try to be a good person from a perspective of an atheist or agnostic, it really can take you in almost any direction. You know, if you use agnostic ethics as your ground, you really can end up anywhere. As she was saying, if you start with Christ, that does, that's very different. That is very different. Uh, I also, uh, early friends, I mean, I'm thinking of, I think, yes, it was probably Robert Barclay commented, uh, again, it's the Christianity, the Christ that you are, you are taught, that also makes a big difference. How uh, friends understood the spirit of Christ and the, the life of Christ may be very different in very different denominations, and what may be taught in uh, some other denomination might turn off people, unfortunately even though, again, they may be using similar words, but their understandings are very different. That just brings up a slightly different topic. You know, if you look at, and I've looked at a good number of commentaries on the New Testament, and some of them are so different, I mean, in terms of how they interpret things, words, phrases, parables, it's amazing the various directions people go in. I personally... I'm here because I felt that the early friends and traditional friends over the generations really got it right, more so than any other group of people. That's why I'm, I'm here. Well, we're glad these here and we can be with thee. <laughs> and and thank, thank thee for thy work this evening. Thank you. All right. So we'll meet again um, next week. So that all plants may bud and bring forth fruit to the glory of God. This has been a podcast of Ohio Yearly Meeting of the Religious Society of Friends. It was hosted by Henry Jason and edited by Chip Thomas. Our music was from Paulette Myers' CDs, which are Timeless Quaker Wisdom in Plainsong and Wellsprings of Life Quaker Wisdom in Chant. These CDs are available at paulettemeyer.com. <laughs>